either a week ago or two weeks ago, Rich talked about staying in our lanes. This is not necessarily my lane. I uh, gave testimony uh, about a year after coming to faith, uh, you know, in the church I was attending at the time. Um, so, I mean, this is not the first time I've, I've done this, and I've certainly heard other people's testimonies in the past, and I think, I think what I need to do is talk a little bit about where my life was, uh, talk about that, that, that moment at which my life changed, what's happened since then, and what, what I see uh, going forward with whatever amount of time I have left. So I've got like a little bit of an outline here. I did that a few days after Rick, Rich had asked me to do this. Uh, I haven't really looked much at it, but I've certainly thought quite a bit about this because I just, I just hope that you know, what I have to say may be of some use to you know, someone in the room. Early on, I uh, grew up in the church, actually. Uh, my parents uh, took us to church every week. They were, uh, at least in the view of my peers, very strict parents. As I think about it, I don't know that my parents were so strict as their parents were just so permissive. Uh, but uh, yeah, we went, uh, we went to Sunday school every week, went to church every week. If you look at my Facebook page, either me or my brother, I can't remember which, has one of those pins uh, on our suit jacket that indicate perfect attendance in Sunday school. Went through the whole thing. Uh, it was a Lutheran church uh, in Ambridge. Uh, at the time, it was a very big church, probably, probably worshiped three or 400 people a week. Now it's more or less just sort of a monument, uh, much like the churches in Europe. There may be a dozen people there every week. But in any event, we, uh, we were confirmed in the church. Uh, that would have been around 13 or 14, I think. Uh, was involved in a youth group as a teenager. Uh, and, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, like I said, I, I grew up in the church, but I really didn't come to faith until much later in life, uh, actually in my mid-40s. Uh, sometime after I got my driver's license, and I know this because my brother and I stayed in the church and my parents had left, they had some kind of dispute with the pastor or something, uh, and they started, they started a series of kind of hopping from church to church that, uh, that pretty much continued, you know, the rest of their life uh, at that point, uh, you know, to the point where I can recall when my mother passed a few years ago, she knew a lot of people from a lot of different churches, but she had no real relationship in anybody or in any church. But I think that also had an effect on what happened with my brother and I, because we started to drift. I still had a license. I stayed in a church we were in in Ambridge. Uh, but I started to drift. And uh, shortly after high school, you know, certainly entered into a period of rebellion in my life. If uh, I think there's, there, there's, there's plenty of people in this room that were alive at that time, late 60s into the 70s. There was an awful lot going on. You know, our culture was changing an awful lot. 
Uh, and I certainly, I certainly wanted to, uh, I, I certainly began to rebel and, uh, you know, wanted to sample all of those different uh, sorts of things. And I'm only going to talk a little bit about this. I don't want this to be a list of depravity or anything like that, but uh, I certainly was interested in seeing what the world had to offer uh, in a number of ways. You know, and alcohol ended up being uh, a problem pretty early on for me uh, and developed you know, into a very serious problem later on. And I'll talk a little bit about that, but, you know, this is not going to be one of these AA talks, you know, where I just kind of, you know, list things, you know, that occurred over a 20 or 30 year period, because I think what really matters is what happened after the fact. So anyway, uh, you know, I entered into this period of rebellion and Richard quoted somebody a few weeks ago, I can't remember who it was, that talked about men living their lives in a state of quiet desperation. And man, that was me. I, uh, I had some success uh, early after college, uh, but for the most part, you know, it was a series of different jobs, different businesses, uh, different pursuits. Uh, almost every single year I was doing something different. And I remember, I remember it being a bitterness uh, that I would look at guys that I knew weren't nearly, weren't nearly as smart. They weren't nearly as driven. Uh, they weren't nearly as talented that were doing well. And I couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't reconcile how that could be. Well, the truth of the matter is, for most of those 20 years, you know, I had two, two things in mind. You know, two major pursuits. You know, playing golf and getting to my drinking time. And again, I don't, I don't want this to be a, an AA talk, but I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this because, I mean, in a room of 50, I'm sure there's somebody here that's either dealing with this themselves or they've got a family member that, um, that is dealing with it and they have no idea what to expect. It doesn't take a straight line. You know, you have periods of good, you have periods of bad. The only thing that is absolutely consistent is that uh, it's a downward trend. Now, fortunately for me, I don't know that I ever got all the way to rock bottom, but uh, things took an incredible turn for the worse uh, when my brother got sick. I, uh, yeah, I had one brother, he was two years younger than me, and I still get emotional about this. Uh, he, uh, you know, he was diagnosed with cancer in his early 40s, 42, and uh, by the time it was diagnosed, he was already stage three. And uh, he, uh, he had a kidney removed. He lived for about a year after that. But uh, the last six months were no light, life at all. 
And I think my bitterness, you know, turned to an absolute rage. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just, I couldn't understand. At the time, I was working at a golf course. And, uh, you know, I would see these guys, you know, they were just absolutely horrible human beings. And, and I couldn't understand how it was, how God would let them live, even prosper. You know, my brother was about to die. And I'll tell you, uh, when you're going through it, you don't realize, you know, the drinking is really self-medication. And you don't realize that it's increasing. You, you, you really don't. I mean, everybody around you can see it, but you can't, you can't see it yourself. You don't know it yourself. And uh, that, came to, that came to a point of, uh, well, confrontation. Well, confrontation's not exactly the right word. One night I got home somehow, a particular mess. And uh, a couple of days after that, Donna talked to me and said, uh, you know, I'm not mad at you, but I'm really concerned about you. And uh, I, I knew all along what the problem was. I, I'll, I'll tell you this, you know, every drunk knows, they, every one of us knows we have those moments of clarity when we know exactly what the problem is, but then we try and fix it ourselves. Well, I went, I'd actually had an opportunity to meet, uh, meet, with, meet a guy, I'd ran into him in a golf course several months prior to that, that I used to run around with, and I, uh, his name's Bob, Bob Filler. And uh, I don't mind talking about this because he's given his testimony several times. Uh, uh, I ran into him a golf course and he just mentioned it, uh, you know, I mentioned a number of things. I could tell, uh, one of the things he mentioned was he wasn't drinking anymore. And uh, I remember going home that day, that was several months before this, this night of confrontation. I remember telling Don at the time, I said, this isn't the same guy I used to run around with. This is a better guy. So anyway, I went to see Bob, found him at his house. He was a little concerned when I showed up at his door. He thought maybe I was trying to sell him Amway or something. Uh, and I talked to him about what was going on with me. And he said, you know, you think, you know, maybe it has something to do with Dale getting sick. And, I, and, and actually, believe it or not, I'd never even thought about that, that could that could possibly have anything to do with what was going on with me. But he gave me his story. He gave me his testimony at that time. And I remember he started it with the words, this is what happened to me. And uh, at the end of it, I don't know that I was convinced or totally convicted at that point. But he gave me Rick Warren's book. Uh, many of you may know of that book, Purpose Driven Life. And that book, um, if I remember correctly, there's 40 chapters, and the prescription in the book is to go through it one chapter at a time for 40 days. And I committed to doing that. And sometime uh, during the period uh, of going through that book, you know, I went from a guy that was familiar with church to a true believer in the saving power of Jesus Christ. Now, everything didn't change immediately. 
I stopped drinking for a while, and then I relapsed, which is very common. And, uh, but I had started going to church. I started going to church on the First President Beaver. They had an 8 o'clock service. I could go there on Sunday morning and still get, get to the golf course and run the golf course during the day. Priorities were still way out of, la- out of line. Um, but the pastor there, Jeff Arnold, got a hold of me. And, uh, you know, we had a couple of meetings. And at one point, uh, you know, I kind of confessed to him that I had started drinking again, and that was still an issue. And uh, there was no grace in his response at all. He said, you know, Gene, you're an alcoholic. And uh, you, we need to get you into a small group. And... Um, like I said, there was, there was no grace in that, but at that point there was no, uh, grace wasn't the thing that was called for there. Truth was what was called for at that time. And uh, I, I started into a small group, and that was a small group that I was in for about 14 or 15 years. Uh, the number of guys changed over that period of time. I can tell you that uh, at that point where I'd given myself over, that I had surrendered, like I said, things hadn't really changed. My behavior hadn't really changed in a great deal, but there was a peace that came over me that I'd never had ever in my entire life. But things did start to change. I think that what ends up happening, uh, in the, uh, the Presbyterians are big on this word sanctification or the process of sanctification, which is basically a gradual uh, redemption in what turns into what I think is a much better word, uh, transformation. Uh, There is a period, uh, I believe, with any addiction, there's a white knuckle period. But what ends up happening, you know, if God is leading you through it, is that um, those desires become less and less and less and fade away to where it's not an issue at all anymore. And that continued, and I got started, uh, uh, like I said, I stayed in that group for, oh gosh, it was right before COVID when we finally, uh, uh, when we finally kind of disbanded and how I ended up here, actually. Um, yeah, I was 15 years in that group, and, and, and it's, it was... You know, it was a good Bible study, but what really mattered was it was a group of five or seven men that held each other accountable every single week. Um, and that's, uh, that's what I'm hoping uh, to find here and to bring here, you know, at some point. Um, I met with Rich last, or this week actually. You know, we kind of went through, you know, I took those tests. Uh, you know, for spiritual gifts. And I wasn't surprised by what I saw, but, you know, the issue is, okay, how do we, you know, how, how do we actually uh, take those gifts, you know, and use them in, in some sort of kingdom-building way in this church? I'm a, I'm a huge believer uh, in, in you have to have a relationship in person in church. Um, you know, we kind of got into this thing at 
you know, during COVID with, with, with virtual church and virtual school and that kind of thing. And that's certainly better than nothing, but, you know, in my view, this is all about relationship building and us coming together in community, you know, to advance the kingdom of God. What has that meant for me? What is that fruit of the Spirit? Well, it's a couple of things. You know, first of all, it's this word joy, which I think really gets misused. Uh, because joy ends up looking, uh, you know, in modern lexicon, like happiness. Or that's the, way it's, that's the way it's perceived. And I don't think it's that at all. I think it's much more about contentment. And that's the path that I'm on. I'm not all the way where Paul was. Uh, you know, Rich preached on, on Philippians 4 last week. I think he used verse 7 and 8. I actually like uh, the verses that come, uh, uh, you know, a couple of verses after that. Uh, I'm going to read this. Uh, it's from the New Living Translation, but keep in mind, uh, you know, I know, I know that's, that, that's a paraphrase. But, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that's actually useful for baby Christians. This was milk for me when I first came to faith. And anyway, this is what Paul had to say in Philippians 4. And he's talking about, you know, having just uh, been given a gift from the church. How grateful I am and how I praise the Lord that you are concerned for me. But for a while you didn't have a chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to get along happily, happily, whether I have much or little. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything with the help of Christ, who gives me the strength I need. Thank you. It's helpful to hear that, actually. You know, it's an encouragement when you're speaking. I've said this several times recently. You know, like I said, I'm not quite where Paul is, but we are at a point, and it's not just a material thing. Where, and I've said this many times, I say this over and over again to people that stop by and see me in my shop. I have everything that I need and most of what I want. And I'm not speaking just materially, though, though that's a part of it. You know, in terms of relationships, in terms of my relationship with Donna, you know, in terms of my spiritual relationship, I have everything I need and most of what I want. The other thing is courage. I'm not a macho guy by any stretch of the imagination. And while I certainly had some apprehension about doing this, I don't fear much anymore. In fact, I'm not really afraid of much of anything anymore. And that's not because of who I am. That's because of who I belong to. And I, uh, I had this actually on my... Uh, on my sandwich board for a while. It'll probably go back up again. This is a quote from Joshua. This is my command. 
be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so I'm at a point, I mean, my walk of faith has not been the result of just one or two guys that I had mentioned here. It's been the work of several guys. And I find myself now at age 65 feeling like I need to be that for other men as well. And I'm looking for an opportunity to do that. This is what happened to me. Thank you, Gene, very much for revealing your heart. That's no easy thing to do. But even, you know, I think more importantly, uh, for sharing with us about how um, Christ brings about changes in our lives, the power of change to make us over, different, better than what we were before. I think that that's part of what so much of the world misses about the Christian faith. Um, you know, on one level they think it's just about a bunch of do's and don'ts. On another level they think it's about people like me trying to control people who don't know any better or can't know any better or whatever. Anybody who says that's never run a church before because I, I can't make people do a lot of things I wish they would do, you know. So uh, you're, you're pretty much autonomous and on your own. Uh, but the power of story, testimony. So what Gene just did is what happened so many times, particularly in the early church, when people would have an encounter with Christ. Something would happen. They would maybe travel to some relatives or there would be some kind of persecution and they would have to leave that area. They'd land in another city why are you here? What happened? People would tell their story about this magnificent change in their life because of Christ. There's an encounter that they had with him. And so the church spread pretty much by the kind of thing that Jean and Judy Etter and who else did we have before Judy? We had uh, 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 Patty. We had Patty. That's right. And Frank. That's right. And all of you remember those stories, don't you? It sticks with you uh, in terms of what they said. So, um, you know, we're going to continue to do this about every third Sunday where you get to hear not just like how a person came to faith necessarily, but how God is also working in people's lives because things are going to happen between now and this time next year and other people will have new layers that can be added to their, their faith in Christ that would be good for the body to hear and to be edified by. So, Gene, thank you very much for sharing that. So, um, I'm not sure if I'll be able to get through everything this morning, which is fine, because you know um, I do that with regularity. Um, and so if I have to uh, cut it in half or whatever, I will. But I want you to know that today I'm going to I'm going to try and do a bit of a capstone message about what I've been talking about now for several months. 
And, uh, and it's important that all of the things that I've tried to share with you when it comes to recalibrating our faith, at some point, me, you need to make a decision about what you're going to do with that. Now, maybe as you've been with me on this little journey, on this series that I've been doing, maybe you've been making incremental changes to your life. And that can be helpful. But at some point, I think, like with other big decisions that we have to make in life, whether we're going to get married, buy a house, take on a new job, get some kind of uh, surgery done. There's a point where you have to say, this has to change, and this is what I must do. And I want to say that, you know, as I've been preparing each of these messages, that the more I learn, the more I share, the more I become responsible for what I learned and what I've shared. The more knowledge I gain, the more responsible for that knowledge I become. Now, I have known people who have decided not to go to a church for a certain period of time because they did not want to be informed so they could say they were not informed. Sounds maybe counterproductive, but I have known people like that. They don't want to know. I'm assuming, and most of the people who are here this morning, there are some who can't be here this morning, but most of you who are here this morning, you've been here pretty regularly, pretty consistently. Some of you have passed on to me what it is, your sentiments, your feelings about what it is that I've shared, and uh, have been fairly affirming. So I'm assuming you want to know. And I'm saying that if you do want to know, then maybe, just maybe, it may require a time or a point in time where you make a decision about what we are going to do with this recalibration thing regarding our hearts, our faith, our life, our relationship with Jesus Christ. So bear with me because I'm just going to go through this very quickly and then I'm going to get into something here that I think um, that will help us with that. So there were three parts to this, that if we're going to recalibrate our heart, there has to be repentance. And not just repentance just one time, but regular repentance on a regular basis. Because you and I are still sinful. We are still broken. We are still depraved. We, are, we still live in rebellion to God. And so that requires repentance on a regular basis. It also means that we have to guard our heart. The world is full of information, misinformation, mal-information. Satan is alive and well and works very, very hard to tempt, to confuse, to obfuscate what we see, what we think we know, what truth is, and we have to guard our heart from that. 
And that's work. Garbage in, garbage out. We have to be prepared, be careful about what kind of garbage we let into our heart. And thirdly, constancy. The ability to remain consistent, to stay true to our faith. These three things, I think, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you about later, but anyway. So in particular, then, I've focused on these five areas of constancy. The constancy on our purpose, the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the biblical virtues, and something I haven't talked about yet, the spiritual disciplines, uh, a series of disciplines that have worked themselves out throughout the history of the church that have been very helpful in maintaining faith and growing in your faith. So when we talk about constancy of our purpose, we're talking about being his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There isn't a person here who exists that God does not have a purpose for your life. And we will be judged according to how we embrace that purpose and live according to that purpose. Constancy in the fruit of the Spirit. But if the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such things there, are no, there is no law. These have to be the markers of how Christians must live their lives. These have to be important to us in the same way that they are the very nature and character of Christ himself. So we have to commit to these ourselves. Bear with me. I know that you've heard this many times before, but I'm telling you, I'm getting to a point in all this, and I want you to hear it very clearly after having your mind refreshed about why uh, we're doing this. Constancy in the gifts of the Spirit that you can, you can find in 1 Corinthians and Romans and Ephesians. And there, then there's this whole list here, and we've reviewed that. And many of you have taken that, that particular test. And some of you have been uh, not surprised, and some of you have been surprised. And I'm saying that now that you know those things about yourself, you know better how to apply your life to this world, to this church, to this community, to your family, to your, your colleagues in which you live. You know. And not only that, but the Apostle Paul is very clear, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They are not a mistake. They will not go away. They cannot be changed. They belong to you and to you alone. And if you and I don't show up with the gifts that God has given to us and the calling that he has applied to our lives, then maybe, just maybe, that work doesn't get done and people in the world suffer unnecessarily because we didn't show up. And that, too, will be part of the discourse that we have with God as we stand before him on the judgment throne. Constancy in practicing the biblical virtues. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence if there's anything worthy of praise think on these things these characteristics these virtues also must be a regular part of who we are as people none of us do any of this perfectly none of none of us do the, do any of these things with great consistency but the point is is there an upward trajectory is there maybe a step backwards, but two or three steps forward? A step or two backwards, four steps forward? 
Is that what is happening? If that's what's happening, that's good. That's progress. We are growing. And in that, we are bringing change to the world on behalf of Christ. But all of this stuff, as you are thinking about who you are as a believer, what you believe that you've accomplished with your life. I am 63. My parents died when they were 72. If genetics have anything to do with it, I ain't got much time left. And when you start reaching 55, 56, 57 years of age, you start thinking about those things a lot more. So I'm asking myself the question, is what I have accomplished thus far in my life, will it, will it last or will it burn? Will the best of which I have accomplished with my life, what I think is for my life, will it last? Is it eternal or will it burn? There's a text for this. And I know you're waiting with bated breath about what that text is. So in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to that. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, the Apostle Paul is addressing this Corinthian church. I'll tell you a little more about it in a, in a few minutes. Where he says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. It will become clear. It will become evident. For the day of judgment will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Is what you believe you have accomplished thus far in your life, the best of what you have done, will it last or will it burn? How will it handle the day of judgment? If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, if our work that we have done on the foundation of Jesus Christ survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, maybe some of you are going like, <laughs> at least I get in. But is that really, is that really what any of us want to be satisfied with? 
do we really want to live the bulk of eternity with just this little, like, I, I could have done more. So, there are a number of texts here, and I, w- I have more than what I can, I have time to share. But understand that God will judge our works. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. It all is evaluated. There is judgment, and we are rewarded according to what we have done, good or bad. Now moving forward, and I'm saying this for Mike's benefit, several slides, there will be judgment so in Revelation twenty two twelve, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. So if you're a non-believer and you've not come to faith in Christ, there is that eternal judgment. If you are a believer, there is a judgment for what we have done and not done how faithful we have been with all that he has given us, how faithful we have been in terms of our calling, how faithful we have been in terms of exercising the fruits of the Spirit, how faithful we have been in terms of the virtues of the faith, all of those kinds of things. Now, when Paul is writing to this church, because let's give you some context here, because context is everything, understand this, two things. Are really important. Number one, no other church in Paul's ministry received as much instruction and correction than the church in Corinth. You might note that 1st and 2nd Corinthians are among the biggest, longest letters in the New Testament. You might note that combined, no other letter comes close to the size that 1st and 2nd Corinthians have. Why is it that Paul spent so much time instructing and correcting this church that he planted and built? Where he laid this foundation that was a perfect foundation. And yet, apparently, these believers in the city of Corinth really struggled with building what was good on top of the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so when the Apostle Paul says, if any man has built with with, uh, gold, silver, or precious stones, those people have built on top of the foundation things that are worthy, things that will last, things that can survive the discerning fire of judgment. But if you've built on that foundation things that are um, um, defective, that won't last, that, that rot, that have no real substance to them, like wood, hay, or straw, that will be consumed. So the question we should all ask ourselves as we read this text is, how much of what I have built on the foundation of Jesus Christ with my life is made up of gold, silver, and precious stones? Like what you would use in a temple for God. And how much of what I have built on the foundation for Jesus Christ is really comprised of wood, hay, and straw? 
Let me ask you, let me tell you, if we don't know that, it's a problem. If it isn't pretty clear to us what portions of our life that we have attempted to use to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ that really make up, are really made up of wood, hay, and straw, if we don't know that, fundamentally, we probably have ignored the Holy Spirit. Because he is faithful to point out and to show us where we need to grow and what we need to change. Now, I want to take the last five minutes, and then I'm going to get into this text much more next week. But I want to say this. Part of the way in which the church and the people of the church build on the foundation of Jesus Christ, this building that's supposed to be the church. So that's the metaphor. The metaphor is this building. We are building this building, this church, and some of us want to try to build this building called the church with precious things like gold, silver, and precious stones. And some want to build it with wood, hay, or straw, and some combine them. But just taking the, pre- the people who try to build the church on wood, hay, and straw, what would that look like in today's parlance? What would that look like in today's world? See, back then, they would try to use that. They would try to do that using some kind, different kinds of philosophy or blending in other religions. They would try to improve upon the gospel. You think, well, that's ridiculous. That's absurd. It's no more absurd than what we do today. The greatest heresy in the modern day church is that most of us want to worship the God that we want rather than the God who is. Most of us want to worship the God that we want rather than the God who is. And I see this all the time. So last week, there was this commercial on during the Super Bowl the people who paid for that commercial paid $14 million for a one-minute commercial called He Gets Us. Now, I have some colleagues, former youth ministry students, pastors, who when they saw that commercial, and that's not the only commercial they've done, they've done others, But in that one minute, $14 million commercial, where it ends by saying, he gets us, they were thrilled because this commercial, in their mind, pointed to God. The problem with the commercial was that what it was pointing to was a different kind of Jesus, not the Jesus who is but the Jesus they wanted. Because the commercial was all about grace and not about truth. The commercial was all about saying that God really only cares about you if you're disenfranchised, if you're victimized, if you're hurting. There's really not anything you have to do 
except for just recognize that he just loves you in that way and there's nothing else that you have to do. Now, interestingly enough, a few days after that commercial was aired, someone took that commercial, they took the words away, and they really put in the gospel. And it wasn't offensive. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't arrogant. It was just powerfully done, very gentle, very genuine, very orthodox. That was, the second version, was the Jesus who is. But you and I are surrounded. We are surrounded by believers, by churches, by theologians, by pastors who think they can improve upon Jesus and the gospel. And it is the greatest heresy of our time. And it is comprised of nothing more than wood, hay, and straw. Now that's just one example. It's just one example. So maybe we begin by just asking this question. Do you worship the God who is? Or do you worship the God that you want? And if you are worshiping the God that you want, do you really believe that you have the ability on your own to articulate the fullness of the God who really is? So let me leave us all with this kind of like question, this Assignment for you to think about this week, and then I will finish this message uh, next week. If you were to do an inventory of everything that you have done for Christ, Jesus, as your foundation as a believer, if you were to ta- if you were to write it all out, and I would encourage you to do that and take an inventory, how much of that, how much of that inventory is made up of gold, silver, and precious stones? Stuff that is enduring, that is eternal in nature. How much of it is really wood, hay, and straw? How much of what we have done with our Christian life, how much of what we have done in our Christian life will not burn? Do you know? We should know. We should know. Because, and then this is sort of where I'm going, but I'll talk about it. Because... If, if what we build on, the foundation of Jesus Christ, is our, the purpose that he has given to us, if what we build on, as, um, the, on the foundation for Jesus Christ, if what we build on is um, uh, the fruit of the Spirit, if what we build on is or are the virtues 
that he has given to us. If we build on the foundation of Jesus Christ with those things, that's enduring. That's gold, silver, and precious stones. But if what we build on it is a turn or burn mentality, if what we build on it is um, only Jesus as Savior but not as Lord, if what we build on it is are things like um, uh, 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 a hypocritical life in terms of how we live our life, we say one thing, we do another, the list is rather endless. If that is it, then that's wood, hay, and straw. The reason why this recalibration thing is so important is because it must force us to confront what we are building on the foundation of Jesus Christ with. And if that happens, we become a different church. We are a different people.